Hi, writers. Welcome to a new edition of our podcast on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I've mentioned in an earlier episode that I like hearing how writers began their journey. What prompted them, often early in their lives, to want to write? What lit the fire? I received a nice message from Christoph in Germany. He wrote, I was born in 1972 in a country which at the, at the time was called West Germany. That was 27 years after the end of World War II and 17 years before the Berlin Wall came down. It must have been around 1982 or 1983 when I was in grammar school. Our teacher gave us a new type of assignment. She wrote three words on the blackboard and then asked us to write a story out of them. I've never forgotten these three words. Hut, Spazierstock, Flasche. Hat, walking stick, and bottle. For once I was thrilled. Now there was an assignment which I immediately fell in love with. That wasn't often the case with assignments in grammar school. And off I went, to a mysterious and foggy London evening. I still recall the first lines I wrote. Wenn abends die Geheiminst wollen, dunklen Nebelschwanen an der Themse. Pardon my German pronunciation. Christoph goes on. Where my hatted hero was strolling through a park alongside the River Thames, swinging jauntily his umbrella, which inadvertently lands in a bush, where my hero discovers a bottle, which contains a sheet of old paper, which turns out to be a symphony by the renowned composer Amavig van Beetzart and so on and so on. If my memory doesn't fail me, the story ends with the premiere of a new symphony in Berlin. I don't recall the grade that I got, nor whether I ever showed this work to my parents. What still rings in my ears is my teacher's comment on my first story. Ist das wirklich auf deinen Mist gewaschen? You didn't make that up yourself. For many, many years, that was the only story which I ever wrote. That's from Christoph in Germany. Isn't that lovely? Isn't that how it happens? Three words on a blackboard makes him fall in love with writing. I really like hearing this. I'd like to talk about setting description again. Here's a summary of things we've mentioned in prior episodes. These are techniques for describing setting. Use details that appeal to the five senses. Sights, sound, smells, tastes, and textures of a setting. Be specific. In Strunk and White's phrase, be specific, definite, and concrete. Specific details convince. We writers are creating an image in the reader's mind of our settings, and details are the proofs. Details are evidence of our setting for the reader. Use the setting description to do more than just describe the place. It should do double duty. A good definition can set a tone, increase danger, or pose a mystery. It can offer comfort, uh, or it can offer a challenge. A 
a good setting shouldn't just be inert. We can think of a setting as we would a character and uh, an element that can contribute to the story. A setting description is often improved if something is happening in the setting while it's being described, some action. A setting is most of the time static or fairly static, and if the writer adds action, it becomes more interesting. Here's an example of a setting that is without details. This is my writing. Two sentences. The flowers in the meadow were bright, and the acres were fenced in. A barn was in the far corner, and animals grazed in the grass. Blah. Let me read it again. Notice what it lacks. The flowers in the meadow were bright, and the acres were fenced in. A barn was in the far corner, and animals grazed in the grass. The writer has described the setting, but it isn't engaging. It's bland and charmless and doesn't make the reader wish she could visit such a place. Let's try again with a better description. Red fireweed swayed in the wind, and yellow California poppies dotted the rocks at the west end of the field. The barn's red paint had chipped and faded over the decades, and the wood was speckled. Two palominos grazed on grass in the field, and when she climbed over the lodgepole fence, the horses trotted her way, picking up speed as if to see which could get to her first. She laughed and held out a hand toward them. Isn't that better? We've got color, texture, palominos, alfalfa, a lodgepole fence, and, and something to watch with her climbing and the horses coming toward her. The mood is sunny. It's a Norman Rockwell scene. It's due to detail, action, and specificity. If our setting description makes the reader want to go there, or afraid to go there, we likely have a great setting. And here's a funny rule of writing. Maybe it's not a rule, but it should be. Almost any story will be improved by the addition of a horse. I'm reading two novels, Tolstoy's War and Peace and Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. Both have horses. Any story improves with a horse. Uh, Mules might suffice. suffice. If you're writing science fiction set on Mars, see if you can add a horse. Readers, mostly those who've never been around horses, love horses. The last horse I was on was at a ranch in Wyoming. The horse's name was Will James, a giant blue roan who, the first instant I climbed onto the saddle the first day, knew I was a pathetic city slicker. And and so during my week riding Will James, he did pretty much what he wanted to do. But I digress. One of the best ways to improve our writing is to read good writing. Here are examples of wonderful setting descriptions. Notice how these famous writers do it. Here is Carson McCullers in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Weaver's Lane was dark. Oil lamps made yellow, trembling patches of light in the doorways and windows. Some of the houses were entirely dark, and the families sat on their front steps with only the reflections from a neighboring house to see by. Uh, 
A woman leaned out of a window and splashed a pail of dirty water onto the street. A few drops of it splashed onto Jake's face. High, angry voices could be heard from the backs of some of the houses. From others, there was the peaceful sound of a chair slowly rocking. That's Carson McCullers. Isn't that vivid? Here's a, an example from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Ring, Part 1, which is titled The Fellowship of the Ring. Inside Bag End, Bilbo and Gandalf were sitting at the open window of a small room looking out west onto the garden. The late afternoon was bright and peaceful. The flowers glowed red and golden. Snapdragons and sunflowers and nasturtiums trailing all over the turf walls and peeping in at the, at the round windows. Doesn't that description make us want to be there with them? It's just lovely. Here is from Tolstoy's War and Peace. They crossed the ferry where he had talked with Pierre the year before. They went through the muddy village, past threshing floors and green fields of winter rye, downhill where snow still lodged near the bridge, uphill where the clay had been liquefied by the, by the rain, past strips of stubble land and bushes toughened with green, uh, touched with green here and there, and into a birch forest growing on both sides of the road. In the forest it was almost hot. No wind could be felt. The birches with their sticky green leaves were motionless, and lilac-colored flowers and the first blades of green grass were pushing up last year's leaves. Uh, this, too, is from War and Peace. The night was fresh, bright, and very still. Just before the window was a row of pollard trees looking black on one side and with silvery light on the other. Beneath the tree grew some kind of lush, wet, bushy vegetation with silver leaves and stems here and there. Farther back, beyond the dark trees, a roof glittered with dew. To the right was a leafy tree with brilliantly white trunk and branches, and above it shone the moon, nearly at its full, almost in an almost starless spring sky. Here is Robert Ludlam in the Born Supremacy. The walled city of Kowloon had no visible wall around it, but it was clearly defined as if there were one made of hard, high steel. It is instantly sensed by the congested open market that runs along the street in front of the row of dark run-down dark run flats, shacks haphazardly perched on top of one another, giving the impression that at any moment the entire blighted complex will collapse under its own weight, leaving nothing but rubble where elevated rubble had stood. That's Robert Ludlam. These have been examples of well-crafted settings. We want to visit these places and some we want to stay away from. Reading good writing and asking ourselves why is it so good is maybe the best way to improve our writing. One of our best fiction writers is Ken Follett. Uh, wow, can he tell a story so involving that the reader seems to be living alongside his characters. The Wall Street Journal recently interviewed Ken Follett. Let me read some of the interview. I really like knowing how writers think and work, and this is fascinating, one of the 
most interesting author interviews I've ever read. The headline is, Ken Follett says readers still like epic books. And the subheading is, Dwindling attention spans haven't hurt the appeal of his doorstop-sized novels. Quote, the evidence is in my bank account. The uh, interview was done by, and this article was written by Emily Bobro in the Wall Street Journal. Ken Follett's latest novel, The Armor of Light, concludes a wildly successful eight-volume series spanning a thousand years of human civilization. Yet when he first switched to historical fiction decades ago, after years of writing best-selling thrillers, it was against the advice of his publisher. Few would have predicted that the first book in the series, Pillars of the Earth, about building a medieval cathedral, would have wide appeal. But Follett, age 74, got the last laugh. Published in 1989, it remains his most popular novel. Despite its epic length, a trait of most of his novels, it still sells 100,000 copies a year in the United States. Quote, when a book is good, readers don't want it to stop, he insists. Quote, the evidence is in my bank account. The article and interview continues. With his new book, Follett returns once again to the site of his cathedral, the fictional English town of Kingsbridge. Quote, readers like the familiarity, and so do I, he says. Set hundreds of years later, the armor of light traces the dawn of the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain in the 18th century, when machines began to enhance the work done by people in manufacturing and then to displace them. Quote, the new machines created social conflict, and social conflict is dramatic, he says. Uh, over oh, he says over video from his country house in Herefordshire, uh, north of London, where he lives with his wife Barbara. Quote, I like dramas in my stories to arise not merely from my imagination, but from historical change. Social conflict is dramatic, says the author. Most of his books brim with war, sex, intrigue, and battles of will. Yet Follett, who has sold around 190 million copies of his 36 novels in over 80 languages, says the trick for riveting readers is ensuring they care about his characters. Quote, a book may be beautifully written, it may be clever, but if it doesn't grab the reader emotionally, it won't sell, he says. The armor of light has clear resonances with the current moment. Its characters struggle with rising food prices, disruptive industries, variable weather, exploitive monopolies, and an intractable war, in this case with France, to prevent the spread of revolutionary ideas to other monarchies. Follett says it's inevitable that contemporary concerns drive his stories, but he strives to keep his books apolitical. Quote, look, readers would know if I was skewing the facts to suit a particular point of view. Despite his own lavish good fortune, quote, I do know that money and success sometimes make people unhappy, but not me. I really like it, he says. Follett still plainly sympathizes with economic underdogs. 
quote, perhaps it's because my roots are in a coal mining community in South Wales, he explains. His own grandfather was an apprentice coal miner at 13, an experience Follett imagines at the start of Fall of Giants in 2010. The first volume of his Century Trilogy, which chronicled major conflicts of the 20th century through the, through the interrelated lives of five families. Follett says he began that series after recognizing that World War I was essentially an accident of history, unwanted by European leaders at the time. Quote, they got nudged and pushed and they stumbled in against their own will, he says. I suppose the thought that began the book was, could that happen today? The Armor of Light probes the complexities of faith, although the Bishop of of Kingsbridge seems more interested in the pomp and privileges of his life than the needs of the poor, the Bishop's devout daughter builds a school that feeds hungry children and teaches them to read. Quote, if that isn't God's will, nothing is, she declares. Follett admits that his own take on religion was not always so nuanced. Having grown up in a puritanical Protestant household, he recalls being 14 and asking his parents questions they couldn't answer, such as how they knew the Bible was true. Quote, it's a great emotional wrench to rebel against what your parents value most in life. But I did that, he says. Follett studied philosophy at University College London in the late 1960s, which enhanced his contempt for his parents' religious beliefs. Quote, for a while I was quite, mil- uh, quite a militant atheist, but I kept meeting religious people who are very good, he says. My books have tracked my own evolution. After graduating, Follett wrote for newspapers but left to work for a small London publisher when he realized he preferred novels to the news. Strapped for cash, with his first wife and two small children at home and a car in need of repairs, he tried writing a bestseller in his spare time. Quote, Perhaps because I never studied literature at university, I sensed I had a feeling for why some books were successful and others weren't, he says. He published ten novels in four years, mostly under a pseudonym and written with a pacing of a newspaper man. My early books went too fast. With the breakout success of the more leisurely Eye of the Needle in 1978, a World War II thriller, my future was decided, he says. Popularity can be a burden, but Follett remains grateful for it. If I ever read a page and I'm tempted to say, it will do, I then remember how many millions of people are going to read it, so I write it again. Follett spends about a year researching and outlining a book, another year writing the first draft, and a final year rewriting it, taking in the notes and suggestions of friends and historians. Popularity can be a burden, but Follett remains grateful for it. Why do I carry on? Because it's the most interesting thing in my life, and it's still very challenging. If it becomes easy, I'm not sure I would keep doing it. That's the interview of Ken Follett by Emily Bobro in the Wall Street Journal. I sure like learning how writers do it, and Ken Follett sure knows how. I came across a, a mixed metaphor that's so wonderful that I, I need to repeat it here. Not only is this a mixed metaphor, it incorporates two 
tired cliches. This is from the the congressional newspaper, The Hill. Here it is. They've fanned the flames, but have yet to find a smoking gun. (laughs) Yeah, the reader was probably working under the newspaper's deadline, but, but still... You've heard me say, in in fact, just a couple minutes ago, that one of the best ways to learn to write is to read good writers and ask ourselves what they're doing that makes it so good. I'd like to read a couple paragraphs of great writing, famously great writing, where characters are described. Uh, You've heard me say that our character in our story should be described right after the reader meets her. The reader needs an image. Without an image, it's hard for that character to engage the reader. Here is how Leo Tolstoy describes characters in War and Peace, which I'm rereading. Notice how he brings these characters to life with precise and vivid descriptions. This is Leo Tolstoy. Dolokhov was of medium height with curly hair and light blue eyes. He was about 25. Like all infantry officers, he wore no mustache so that his mouth the most striking feature of his face, was clearly seen. The lines of that mouth were remarkably finely curved. The middle of the upper lip formed a sharp wedge and closed firmly on the lower one, and something like two distinct smiles played continually round the two corners of his mouth. This, together with the resolute, insolent intelligence of his eyes, produced an effect which made it impossible not to notice his face. Here's another description from Leo Tolstoy, from the novel, from the great novel. Sonia was a slender little brunette with a tender look in her eyes, which were veiled by long lashes, thick black plates coiling twice round her head, and a tawny tint in her complexion, and especially in the color of her slender but graceful and muscular arms and neck. By the grace of her movements, by the softness and flexibility of her small limbs, and by a certain coyness and reserve of manner, she reminded one of a pretty, half-grown kitten which promises to become a beautiful little cat. Here's another description from Leo Tolstoy. The commander of the regiment was an elderly, choleric, stout, and thick-set general with, a grizzle, with grizzled eyebrows and whiskers, and and wider from chest to back than across the shoulders. He had on a brand new uniform showing the creases where it had been folded and thick gold epaulets which seemed to stand rather st- seemed to stand rather than lie down on his massive shoulders. He had the air of a man happily performing one of the most solemn duties of his life. Here is another description from War and Peace. The black, hairy, snub-nosed face of Fosca Denisov and his whole short, sturdy figure with the sinewy, hairy hand and stumpy fingers in which he held the hilt of his naked saber looked just as it usually did, especially toward evening when he had emptied his second bottle. He was only redder than usual, with his shaggy head thrown back like when, like birds when they drink. And here is another description, the last description from Leo Tolstoy. His thin, worn, sallow face was covered with deep wrinkles, which always looked as clean and well-washed as the tips of one's fingers after a Russian bath. 
The movement of these wrinkles formed the principal play of expression on his face. Now his forehead would pucker into deep folds, and his eyebrows were lifted. Then his eyebrows would descend, and deep wrinkles would crease his cheeks. His small, deep-set eyes always twinkled and looked out straight. These are so good. Let me read one more. He rose, took Prince Andre by the arm, and went to meet a tall, bald, fair man of about forty with a large, open forehead and a long face of unusual and peculiar whiteness, who is just entering. The newcomer wore a blue swallowtail coat with a cross suspended from his neck and a star on his left breast. It was Speransky. That's Leo Tolstoy. I get enthused when I read good writing. I hope you do, too. Reading good writing makes me want to write. I know some of our listeners are seniors, and they are embarking on writing novels or short stories. Listen to this. Nobel Prize and Pulitzer Prize winner Saul Bellow published Ravelstein, his 13th novel, when he was 84 years old. That's all from Seattle today. I hope you have a good writing project going. If you'd like to send me a message, my address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. I like knowing where listeners are, so if you'd care to, please tell me what city or country you're sending your message from. Uh, Sometimes I receive messages from listeners who are three miles away from my desk and sometimes 12,000 miles away, and I get much pleasure from knowing where listeners are. It's fun. This is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.